0: Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we just thank you for this time to uh, open your word. We just pray that as I do so, as we do so together as your children, that you will speak to us. We just, I just pray that anything that I may say that's not from you will be quickly forgotten and ignored. But Lord, if you, that, you, that you will speak to us through your word and into our hearts directly. And we just ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So... We're in 1 Timothy again, continuing uh, again this morning, up our our series, and uh, we're up to the beginning of chapter 4, and we're looking at the first eight or so verses, and Paul's writing, as we know, to a a young church leader and elder in Ephesus called uh, Timothy, surprise surprise, who has been handling some very, very difficult issues um, in his church fellowship. You get the idea that, you know, he's not had an easy dig. Um, there's been quite a lot of um, argument and discussion and you know, they, no one had written a textbook for how to run a church. There's, nowadays, there's lots and lots of good advice from people who've been doing it for 2,000 years. Back then, Timothy was sort of on his own and Paul, as an, the apostle to the church, as a, um, as a more senior brother, was giving him great advice and help and support. And uh, one of the most pressing issues that... that, that uh, Timothy is dealing with his, his false teaching amongst his fellow leaders and other leaders in the, in the region. So, um, let's, with that in mind, let's just read our passage for this morning. 1 Timothy 4 verse 8. If you have your Bibles, please turn to them. If you don't, then that's fine. Um, message, the words are up on the screen, and you can follow along. 1 Timothy 4. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, or The last days, as I've titled my talk this morning, is another translation of that, or latter days. Uh, Some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God has created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, because it's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished in the truths of faith and of the good teaching that you've followed. You've nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Amen, may God bless the reading of his word. From the beginning of the letter, four chapters ago, of course, of, of course, we all know, that the book wasn't originally written with chapter headings and verses, that was a later convenience that's been added in. But right from the beginning of the book, Paul's been addressing this concern, and he's, and he, and he's stated things that relate to the kind of things the false teachers were trying to preach, trying to teach. And for time's sake, I won't read all these verses out, but they'll be up on the screen, and you can perhaps follow them up later if you'd like to. But in 1 Timothy 1, verse 3, he points out that they were introducing bad doctrine. In 1, verse 6, he said they were spouting spouting worthless words instead of the truth of the gospel. And in 1 Timothy 1, 7-11, he said, they misunderstood the law of Moses as well as misunderstanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's such a a concern for him, such a burning on his heart, that he names the worst offenders. He calls them out. Imagine that, your name is in the Bible for 2,000 years as being someone who's let God down. Timothy 1, verse 20 mentions Hymenaeus and Alexander. And undoubtedly they were church leaders there in Ephesus. And, and he calls out them, as, them out as false preachers and, and, and leaders that were operating unfaithfully in opposition to God. And he needed to name them because the church needed to be in absolutely no doubt about which teachings to avoid. Don't listen to anything Hymenaeus and Alexander tell you because they're talking rubbish is the kind of thing he's saying. And that's what he needed to name them because the church had to be in no doubt. It's what teachers are supposed to do, he says. Not only teach the things that are true, laying the foundations of truth, but they're also to expose error. And I say that because so much you hear now is about the rights and wrongs of being challenged, what you can, what you can't say. There's so much sensitivity around it these days. If you say something to challenge certain views, you'll get criticised for causing offence. And don't, don't get me wrong, I wouldn't support being unkind to anyone or ungracious or deliberately causing offence but I think yeah surely we need to handle things sensitively and kindly but I mention it because this is today's culture it's what we live if you work if you're at a university if you're in the workplace um, if you're at school you'll have come across this day after day and it's becoming more difficult and it feels dangerous even to express an opinion if that opinion in any way is likely to cause offence to someone even if that opinion is entirely orthodox and a lot of people hold it and you're challenging what appears to be complete folly, but that's what the Bible tells us to do. Particularly anyone acting a pastoral role, you have to do it. It asks us to tell the truth. Not particularly about, say, just the transgender issue or really high topic, but anything. Just, that's a very current issue. But, but about the fact that there is one truth Views contrary to it are false and they are good for us and they should be avoided. The truth that the Bible states is the word of God and sometimes it comes with a cost. This is a gentleman preaching from the Bible on the streets of Birmingham just a couple of months ago and this is what happened to him and he was taken away and arrested because even reading a passage from the Bible can be taken to be offence by some people these days and they called in the police and he was carted off. He was found, he was, uh, his case was dismissed He's not, uh, but uh, nevertheless he was arrested in the first place and imprisoned for a short period of time. On our streets in the UK nowadays. Putting this then, we may cause offence and in causing offence in 21st century Britain there may be real and severe consequences, sadly. And we may get called names like intolerant. although People often using that term don't really know what it means, I think. Tolerance, as I understand it, as it's defined in the dictionary, means we're kind to people who have different views to us. It doesn't mean we have to agree. By definition, they're people who you disagree with. But you don't have to support their ideas. That's something else entirely. Anyway, that's a whole other tangent we could spend a long time on. Truth, though, objective truth seems to count very little in our culture these days. It's all opinion. And so often opinion can stifle truth. Who are you to say that Christianity is the only way to God? That's just your opinion. Expressing that is intolerance. And the Twitter mobs will say that. So please be aware, this is what I'm doing this morning. And if you you disagree with what you think, I've, I've not interpreted something correctly, because it disagrees with your understanding, then let's have a conversation. I may be wrong, I may have interpreted the Bible incorrectly. If you disagree with what I say, simply because it feels a bit uncomfortable, a bit counter-cultural, then we can still have a conversation, but I'll just have to say, go and study the text yourself then. And if you agree with me that that is what the Bible actually says, then the argument is way above my pay grade. As the politicians say, I'm only a messenger, I'm not the author. So, what do we do with people in the church who are preaching something that adds to or distorts the truth? ignore Jesus' words when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If that's not intolerant and exclusive, I don't know what is. It's intolerant of untruth, intolerant of lies. Romans 16 verses 17 and 18 says this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for you, for those that cause divisions and put obstacles in your way. That are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Paul urges the church to stay away from them. Just don't go near; it's dangerous. And it's necessary to reject false teaching if we're going to grow as a church, as we're going to grow as individual Christians. We're There's no point chasing false ideas. We've got to not even entertain it, just reject it, steer clear of it, because it's dangerous. And false teachers are playing with fire. Remember when Paul was outlining the qualities of leaders, of elders in the church in 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, we looked at it a few weeks back, he says the elder must be able to teach. In other words, he's to divide the word correctly. You must communicate it clearly and honestly, not to mislead or confuse. He's not to back off and tell you only the comfortable parts of the story, only the easily palatable parts of the story. He's not to make things up and add to the story to make it sound a bit better or to make it go down better. False doctrine is like pollution. It only takes a little bit to cause an awful lot of damage. And ultimately, false doctrine can pollute or destroy the whole church. So we're not to entertain it or encourage people that support it or teach it. So as Paul's going through his letter to Timothy, he ends chapter 3, as we heard last week, with what is called a creedal statement. A creedal statement, a creed, is a doctrine or formula that that encapsulates, outlines core religious beliefs, the creed. It's also called a confession or a statement of faith sometimes in different traditions. And he's been challenging false teaching, so he wants to emphasize, this is the truth. In the last verses of chapter 3, he said, beyond all question, The mystery from which true godliness springs is great. And he... uh, Oh yeah, 1 Timothy 3 verse 16. There we are. (laughs) Sorry, I was ahead of myself. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up into glory. And as the church grew... In the early years, it saw opposition and debate and attempts at syncretism and absorbing Christian ideas into other religions and and ideas from other religions into Christianity. That was the Roman way. That's what they'd done with their religion for hundreds of years. The Greek way, the Roman and Greek religious absorbed a lot of ideas from Egyptian religion and from Persian religion and from indigenous faiths and gods and practices. And there was this ongoing uh, discussion as well, of course, that what... Judaism, what elements of Judaism remained valid under the new Testament, New covenant and which had been fulfilled and should be dropped. And this, this was very prevalent in Ephesus, which was this huge cultic center for paganism and mysticism and pagan philosophy. There was this massive library there, there's a picture of it there. It's a wealthy city with lots of time and money to dedicate to such things. So as the church grew and, and faced these arguments, the response from the church was the production of creeds. The creeds were intended to establish what become biblical foundations. Look, this is what we believe. This is the truth. And there are other examples of creeds that Paul cites. Paul wrote down what is believed to the earliest, possibly even in the mid-50s, mid-A.D. 50s, saying this is what he'd received from other apostles and first Christians sometime in the 25 years or so since the crucifixion. This is the very first written statement about what Christians at the time believed. This was eyewitness testimony of the men and women who'd seen it who'd been there. So it was known to be orthodox. It was evidential truth. People could, you know, people who'd been there said, this is what I saw. And 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 to 5 says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And then, I, so this is, this is, this is the core of the gospel. This is true. This is what it's about. Nothing else re- you know, this is, you can't complicate it. It's not Jesus plus. You can't take it away to make it easier. It's not Jesus minus. It's Jesus. And this is what it is. And we have the Apostles' Creed in 8180 and the Nicene Creed in 325. which sort of expand a little bit as various heresies and various weird ideas have started popping up and saying, No, this is what it's about. And the need is there to say clearly and unequivocally what the truth is the benefit of the church. And Paul's writing that these were elements that are central to the Christian faith. These are the kind of things the false teachers were denying and throughout the life of the church then and in the intervening 2,000 years to this day. It keeps happening. But chapter 4 continues on like this, exhorting Timothy and the church in Ephesus and beyond to, to us now, exhorting us to reject false teaching. And he says, Their persistence and their infiltrations are considered a primary sign of the last days. That's what he says in verse 1. And it's Jesus' words as well. He's reiterating what Jesus told them. In Matthew Matthew 24, verses 3 and 4, Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. Disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. And this is straight from Jesus' own mouth, his own teaching in Matthew 24. And he's asked about the last days, and he says, take care, no one deceives you. This is what's going to happen in the last days. Deception is something the church has been warned about, is a sign from Jesus, his own words, and from the pen of the Apostle Paul, that, that we're in the last days. If we see deception happening, these are the last days. And Paul's writing that in verse 1. He's saying, that in these last days, people will fall away, be deceived away from the truth. The Spirit expressly says, he says, this he has, he has divine instruction, he's been given the word, this is what's going to happen. That gives us, actually, an insight into the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not just power, but Paul says here, the Spirit says, the Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit is a person. Only people speak, the Holy Spirit must be a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. It's recorded in Acts that the Spirit speaks, in Acts 8, in Acts 10. In 13, and in 2 Peter as well, there are words that come from the Holy Spirit. He's the one who inspires, he's the one who directs. And in this passage, the Spirit is inspiring a prophetic word about the end times. And he's saying some people will voluntarily depart from the truth of the gospel, and that's inevitable. It will happen. Don't be surprised, don't be disappointed, don't be worried. It's going to happen, it's inevitable. Voluntary change of heart, as Jesus tells the parable of the sower in Luke 8. There's always those that seem to initially embrace the gospel, but they don't remain. Get distracted, fall away, follow strange ideas. Thorns spring up, birds come along, and the seed is choked or forgotten, or it's eaten, and they're distracted. They've never really committed themselves to the Lord in the first place. It's just been an idea they've entertained for a while. They've had a temporary change of mind, but they've not had a change of life. And if they had, they would have remained with him. Hebrews 3 verse 14 says, if we come to share into Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end, it's a mark of the believer. So the latter times people will misled and fall away from the faith, from believing the truth. They won't hold their original conviction firmly to the very end. The latter times, the last times refers to God's program with the church. It began with Jesus' earthly ministry and it continues until his return. Hebrews 1, the first two verses. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. From the beginning of the church to its end, people will fall away. And this falling away will escalate in the period just preceding Jesus' return. There was an attitudinal survey, I don't know if you saw it, hit the newspapers, hit the, the news this week, um, and for the first time, this attitudinal survey which has been going on since the well, for well in, uh, early part of the 20th century, fewer people in Britain say they are Christian than people who don't. Now, there's what difference between saying you're Christian and being a Christian, but even so, 47% of this country now only admits to being, believing Christianity, that they are Christians or anything to do with Christianity. There's a majority of this country now has, wants nothing to do with Christianity. Which is a sad thing, but a significant thing in the context of this message from the Holy Spirit. When Paul uses the word depart, there'll be a deliberate rejection of the truth. There'll be a deliberate rejection of Christian doctrine. People will deliberately follow deception propagated by demonic spirits, which are the originator of all lies. 2 Peter 2 verse 1 says, But there are also false prophets among the people, just there'll be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. This is deliberate rejection of the truth. Knowing, perhaps, what they think the truth might be, but just thinking, I don't want to have anything to do with that. This is better. There are two key words that characterize these last days, deception and denial. So what does that really mean? What does the scripture say that rejection and denial of the truth look like? What does that actually look like? Firstly, there'll be a denial that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. That started in the early days of the church, but it continues to this day that those that'll knock on your door call themselves Christians, but they deny that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Signs, Christadelphians, Unification Church, Islam, groups like Dianetics. They're teaching all deny, they don't deny Jesus exist was a good person, was even perhaps a very spiritual person, was even perhaps Influenced by the divine, but he wasn't God in the flesh, is what they say. Now all of them deny that. The scripture says what they teach isn't from God, therefore. And if the spirit is not from God that's inspired teaching, well, there's only other one place it can come from. It's demonic. So the Bible says. 1 John 4, verse 3, backs this up. Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming. And even now is already And then, secondly, there's denial of the value of a morally pure life. There'll be those who'll give you permission to continue in sin so that grace may be abound, Paul talks about, and Paul had to deal with that in the book of Romans. And his answer was immediate. God forbid. How can we who've been set apart by God continue to sin? And we need to be honest. If the Bible calls it sin, it is sin. That doesn't change with the times. If it was sin then, it's sin now. And God's view of what is sinful hasn't changed, so we do people a disservice. And if we pretend that somehow, well, things were different then, it was a different world, it was a different culture, we've grown up a bit as a, you know, we don't think that's bad now. Saying things like that, it's not not loving, it's lying. And you don't lie to people you love. You don't hate those who sin, even even those who sin against us. What did Jesus teach us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our trespasses we forgive those who trespass against us. We forgive sin in others, even to the extent of when that sin is directed directly against us, let alone when it isn't. We love sinners because, as Romans 3.23 says, we're all sinners who fell short of God's standards. And as Jesus pointed out to the Pharisees, he's called a woman guilty of adultery in John chapter 8. None of us is qualified to throw the first stone when sins of morality are found out in others. Tolerant of sinners, because we've all been there. But the question is really, do we want to stay there? Is it good to stay there? We we can't condone sinful activity itself. We must acknowledge it's wrong. We can't pretend it isn't sinful, and that somehow nowadays, because times have changed, and because God's love, what he calls sin then, doesn't call sin now. Because ultimately we all face judgment. Every one of us, everybody on the earth, all seven billion of us, and we'll have to answer for our actions. And we'll face a holy God. And it won't be a defense for us to say, well, the church told me it was okay to sin, so I've never really repented of it, and, and turned away from sin. I know what sin better than you. you know what sin is. What will God's response be to that argument, I wonder? Right from creation, one of the devil's favorite lies is, well, God didn't really mean that. Right from the beginning of the book of Genesis. Let's be clear, God did really mean that. When it comes to his expectation of how we behave and how we treat each other. Like Adam and Eve, we follow up the lies of the demonic world rather than the truth of God. We'll end up in a lot of trouble. We'll end up separate from God. Far better to heed the warning, take notice of it and try and wriggle out of it and work around it. Jude 17 18 says this. Dear friends, remember what the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in the last times there'll be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. Then there's the, fourthly the denial of the need to study the Bible. Thirdly there's a movement abroad that seems to, to be turning the church into entertainment and, and sees the Bible and the study of the Bible as boring and a bit of a waste of time and it's sort of something old people do. We need something that's going to appeal to us on a different level and all of that kind of thing. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 says this. The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Sometimes what's good for us isn't comfortable and isn't easy. And sometimes it's hard work. Anything worthwhile is hard work. So let's not get distracted by just doing what's easy. Fourthly, there's a denial that Jesus is returning again. It's interesting because the word of God, how people can say this and say they still believe the Bible or that they're Christians is not possible. People have. The Bible says Jesus returns promised in no less than 300 times. I think it's actually slightly more than that. Jesus will come again, and 2,000 years is a long time, and certainly the early Christians believed it was imminent. It was going to be within a few years, not a few hundred years, let alone a few couple of thousand. So 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4 says this, Above all, you must understand that the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Even in the first century, even as the book of Second Peter was being written, people still say, hang on, where's this God? Where's Jesus? He said he was coming back. Where is he then? Clearly he's not coming back. You're making it all up. The spirit of the age encourages unbelief. This idea that the second coming of Christ, uh, that we'll come face to face with him one day, is just a fable. It's been 2,000 years. It's not going to happen now. It was going to happen. It would have happened ages ago, surely. Let me tell you, 2,000 years is a blink of an eye in God's time. It might be tomorrow. It might be 20 or 200 or 2000, another 2,000 years or even longer if he, holds, if he holds his hand back. We don't know when, but he will return because he's promised to and God doesn't lie. He is truth. The Demons entice people to reject the truth because they'd rather believe anything but the fact that we're going to be accountable for our actions and our disobedience. And one day we'll meet him face to face and account for what we've done face-to-face with a holy and righteous God. The spirit of the age is to turn our back on Christ, turn our back on God and do anything to avoid his gaze. And The tragedy is that doing that, we miss the lifeline, the only shelter that there is from that gaze. And God's freely offering him. He's Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And in looking to avoiding God, they're avoiding their hope as well. We're living in the last days. We're living in a time when people are voluntarily departing from the truth and giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines and demons. And these are people who still to something of the gospel. They even outwardly really agree and if you ask asked them if they'd say they're Christians but if you tell someone we need more love, yeah, they'd say yes, we do. Or if you say we need more faith in this nation, they say we, yeah, you're right about that. If you say you need to have faith in Christ, you're going to have a problem if you don't. Well, that's where you get a problem. Most people don't say, say aren't, aren't actually atheists. They don't deny the belief that there's a God of some kind. Outright atheists are actually quite a small minority of the population. Most people, though, don't, as we said, don't say they aren't Christians. But they would still say they were spiritual. Still play, there's something out there. They've rejected the gospel. They've rejected organized religion. And Some sympathy to that idea. There's much that organized religion has to answer for. Protection of, you know, covering up the acts of paedophiles because they didn't want the shame and controlling what's been done in bullying and, 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 and violence in the name of religion and not rejecting that. And the church has a lot to answer for, the established church in that. But in rejecting what they see as religion, they're rejecting something else that isn't religion. They're rejecting Christianity. And they reject it, the traditions and religious instincts of men that have been layered over the top of the core truth within the years, and it's poisoned it, and we've seen it. And they've thrown the baby out of the bathwater and rejected a relationship with Christ because they reject all this accretion, and I don't think that's an accident. Christianity is about r- relationship, and that's not how they see it. I believe the many lies that have been told about Christianity, popular culture, or by false teachers, or by people who have been more interested in the pursuit of power and distorted the church to a, a structure that, that gives them power. Somehow believe it's some mixture, and holy mixture of the Spanish Inquisition and the Vicar of Dibley. And, and, and whatever, anything but the truth of what Christianity is. And people want love and peace and faith, but they don't want Christ, because they've chosen to believe lies about what faith is. Paul says, The error begins with the deceiving spirits, inspiring demonic Doctrine. The deception doesn't originate with liberal theologians and pastors. It doesn't originate with jaded university professors who like to argue that black is white and go on and on. The d- doctrines are demonic in origin, but they're preached and embraced by men. So that's verse 1. Don't, don't worry, I'll be a lot quicker when we go through the next verse, seven verses. But uh, he goes on in verse 2. He says, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their consciences seared by hot iron. Notice how he says this. It's not a result of a, mis- a mistake. It's being deliberately taught by people he calls hypocritical liars. People who appear outwardly pious, holy even, and that, by the way, is what's attractive to people. People are looking for good role models, people they can look up to. People they imagine can be Perfect. They see these people who seem to live in a different world in a, in, in, in a better way of thinking so they may walk by them in, a, in an airport and they've got a saffron robe on and they're looking serene and that robe and we say boy that's a symbol of someone, someone who's very very holy and different and special. Or they may have their hair a certain way or wear a certain kind of clothing and these people may have very religious outward appearances even during the time of Christ there were people who said that who, who Jesus said unless your righteousness exceeds your the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. You know, there were these people, the scribes and the Pharisees, had this outward appearance of, of absolute holiness. Well, in Jesus is saying, if your righteous, actual righteousness isn't better than theirs appears to be, well, you've got no chance. And when you look at the outward religiosity of, of, of these people of his day, they were amazingly outwardly religious and pious. And they tithe their houseplants. <laughs> Can you imagine? You know, your house, your plants grew, your herbs grew a bit, so... You know, that's it that was it you cut ten of it off and give it to the temple, isn't it? They said Jesus said they were sitting in Moses' seat. They, were, they had this authority air of authority about them. The scribes were intellectuals and scholars, the kind of people were so well versed in what they believed that when Jesus came along they couldn't actually listen to him. How can this man know letters? He's he's uneducated, they said. How did he know theology, saying he never went to our university? And they were amazed. And even today, if someone approaches you and they have this gravity about them, they speak with eloquence and it can cause you to be very intimidated and you know, must know what he's talking about. And that's basically what he's saying. They have the appearance, the outward appearance of piety and holiness, but in reality they're hypocrites. Matthew 23. Verses 27 and 28 says this. Jesus calls out the hypocrites. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside. But on the inside, you're just full of bones and a de- of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear people, people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So Paul speaks in this way. Sort <coughs> always a trouble when you get carried away singing and I challenge you to sing oh, how, how Great Thou Art Without Losing your voice at the end. <laughs> so Paul speaks this way. He says they're speaking with lies and hypocrisies. Conscience is seared with a hot iron. Interesting phrase. That. What, does, what does "seared with a hot iron" mean? That well, means the consciences are close to conviction. They know what they do is wrong, but they're beyond reaching, and they're just set on that path. They don't feel guilty for what they do at all. Those days convicted criminals weren't sent to jail, sentenced to jail. Jail was just a holding pen, a, a remand, prison we call it today, for people waiting trial. Once you'd been convicted by a Roman court, you were punished by a fine or corporal punishment or death. And probably quite a painful death at that. And one of the punishments for criminals was branding or searing. If you were a thief, you could be branded on the face so it hurt, but then everyone could see it forever and know you were a thief and know not to trust you. You're marked as a thief by being seared by a red hot iron. And these people have their consciences seared. Their consciences have been killed off, deadened, like the thief's face would be deadened, and the nerves in his face would be killed, but the brand on his face would mark him as a thief. He wouldn't feel any pain where the brand was anymore, but it would be there for everyone to see. In the same way, the searing of the conscience Kills off any sense of shame at the lies that are spouted. But at the same time, those lies mark them as liars and hypocrites. And he gives, gives an example of the kind of lies in verse 3. Not marrying and not eating certain food. Doing these things would be, you know, eating, would be physical pleasure. And physical pleasure was sin they were teaching. And it's identified by marriage as, as well as eating. So they teach that holiness is defined by what you do or what you don't do. And that's outward holiness and this show of being a good person, a legalistic effort to make yourself holy by your own strength, adding to what Jesus is. It's okay to believe what Jesus said, but you also have to avoid certain kind of food and you have to not marry. and you have to do, Because what Jesus has done is not enough, is what they're saying. So I'm going to abstain from pleasure and wear uncomfortable clothes and look humble and pious. And you're, not, you're going to be holy by not being married and not eating certain things. Colossians two twenty says this. Since you die with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why? As though you still belong to the world, you submit to its rules. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teaching. Now marriage, the next one. Remaining unmarried in some ways does have practical benefits. Just ask Victoria. I'm sure she would tell you the joys of being single and how she's lost them. (laughs) Paul addressed that. He was an unmarried man himself. He said, I wish you had the ability to be as I am. He was unmarried, so he's free to go throughout the whole, the known world, preaching the gospel. And he didn't have the responsibilities that a married man would have done. 1 Corinthians 7, 32 says, you might recognize a couple of faces there. I'd like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, which is true. Believe me. I'm very concerned about how I can please my wife. She probably wishes she, I was more concerned. You have godly, God-given responsibilities. And praise the Lord, uh, Anastasia, this morning, uh, she was, she was uh, about three there, I think, She's giving a testimony on it at the church in Serbia. And Ethan, who's on the other arm, is playing his violin. And praise the Lord that that's happened. And it's an answer to prayer. But it's a responsibility. And bringing the children up is wonderful and it's a gift from God. But because they've been there, that's had to be my focus. God tells you that is your focus. And I haven't been free to do other things. Christians are not commanded, though, to remain unmarried. Singleness is a blessing used by God, but God's the one who established marriage. So it doesn't make you better if you're unmarried. It just means you have fewer responsibilities than married people have. Elders, as we looked at, uh, uh, with Andy a few weeks back, are identified as actually likely being married. And they, they must be faithful in that marriage. So celibacy or not being married is not a biblical requirement for leading or doing anything else in the church. Interesting. Abstaining from food and certain foods, and not being married, not eating eating fish on a Friday, not meat, and having a celibate priesthood. There's one major denomination that claims those are essential, and here we have biblical demonstration that actually that's a load of codswallop. It's untruthful. It's amazing. So he speaks about abstaining from certain foods. Who's to argue about having a healthy diet? I've been known to eat healthy on occasion, once in a while. <laughs> Victoria's already tried to encourage me to eat a bit less. See, that was the cares of marriage that I was talking about. It may be good for my body, but it doesn't make me closer to God. If anything, to be honest, it just makes me even more grumpy than usual. See, God doesn't give us dietary laws. There are so we still think we should follow... The old mosaic laws, there are people who teach that even now under the new covenant. We shouldn't should eat black pudding because it contains blood. We shouldn't have blood transfusions. Maybe we shouldn't eat meat on a Friday. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8 says, Food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we don't eat and no better if we do. <laughs> Can't get much plainer than that. Let's be clear, He dies isn't going to make you closer to God. Verse 4, of the passage, our passage, Everything God created is good. Nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So as Christ has fulfilled the law, the old mosaic prescriptions on pork and shellfish and kosher and all the rest of it, no longer necessary for keeping us separated and apart from God. That was for them. That was for a purpose. And that purpose is now fulfilled. And we're free because Christ has completed it. Mark 7, verses 18 and 20. Jesus says, Are you so dull, he asked, Don't you see nothing that enters a person from outside can defile them? It doesn't go into the heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. And in saying this, Jesus cleared all foods clean. He went on, "What comes out of a person is what defiles them. What they say." People are bringing that false doctrine to the Church of Ephesus, are saying you shouldn't marry because that makes you more holy, and you should abstain from certain foods because that makes you more holy. And Paul's response is, "That's not from the Lord. That's demonic." It's the word of God that promises that we might receive the power of the Holy Spirit, the one who resides in us. Ephesians 4 verse 14 says this, We will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in the deceitful scheming. Paul said we need to know God's word, and he told the church in Ephesus that. Timothy was the pastor of a church, she a the letter to Ephesians, said it to them again and again and again and again. And we see this church of Ephesus, in, Ephesus finally in Revelation 2. Jesus says, Oh, you have a great reputation for so many things, but this I have against you. You've left your first love. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent, and return. Because they've begun to remove, move away from the truth. And Paul was warning Timothy about this in chapter 4 and letting him know the Spirit expressly said, In latter times, some will depart from the faith. And that's why when Paul sadly had his final conversation with the elders in Ephesus, he said, men will arise from amongst yourselves and will draw up people to themselves. And it's not just the wolves that will enter in. Men from among you that will rise up. So he warned them from the beginning. And Jesus said, unless you repent, I will take your candlestick. And this is Ephesus now. May God help us to hear what the Spirit says to the church today. Look at the next slide. The Bible says some wacky things, though. You know, we're talking about the truth. And I have to admit, though, the Bible says some things that are pretty hard to believe. If I was writing the Bible, would I include stories of miracles and things everyone knows are impossible? Probably not. I don't know. If I, not if I wanted people to take me seriously. Unless, of course, those things happen to be true. We live in an age that likes to call itself rational. At least here in the Northern Hemisphere, in the UK. Materialism. Is perhaps the major philosophy in our universities and amongst the younger generation. If you can't see it, I don't believe it exists. Pictures of it doesn't happen. Yet the Bible still contains stories of water being turned into wine, walking on water, the creation of the world by God out of nothing. The truth is, though, that the, by the convent, you know, these are difficult things to believe happen, but the truth is, by conventional rules of logic, the Bible holds up. And the New Testament is the most well-supported and best-preserved document we can have them from pre-medieval times. That's the truth. In terms of quantity and quality, there's more and better historical evidence that Jesus Christ lived, taught, crucified, was crucified and rose again on the third day than that Julius Caesar ever existed. Julius Caesar. Keith challenged me, actually, to fit in a holiday staff. So here's one from Rome at Easter. Not Kenneth Williams, the other one. Um, you see the location in Rome where Caesar was stabbed, supposedly, the form of Pompeii. You know, we know Caesar existed, yet there is even more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead than that Julius Caesar existed. No one would imagine challenge that Caesar existed. There's not enough time. Time's gone. I can't go through an apologetics lecture now, but just to get a little flavour of how credible the New Testament is, here's something to think about. Atheist historian... Gerd Ludeman said, if you pop the quote up, Mark, thanks. He said, reluctantly, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. He says this, and he still remains an atheist, and he acknowledges they had these experiences. The Bible is telling the truth. Those writing the Bible are telling what they believe is the truth, and they would die, prepared to die in defense of it. people are still willing to believe any old lie. Any old thing that makes them feel good or sounds reasonably convincing, like the idea somehow the universe created itself out of nothing, with no external agency. One second, there's nothing, not even time. And the next, boom, an expanding universe with all the potential for chemicals and life and all the laws of physics and fine-tuning that make life possible. How can people believe absolutely no evidence whatsoever that such a thing is possible? Yet they do. If we say the universe had a beginning, it must have had a cause. And if it has a cause, then the cause is God, because only God could create a universe. And anyone who creates a universe must be God. Yet supposedly rational people dismiss that, because they don't want to believe it. They don't want to admit there is a God, and they are accountable to God, and they will close their minds and close their eyes. So let's, as verse 7 puts it, let's reject those old wives' tales. Let's stick to the truth. Let's teach the truth. Because the cost is worth it. It's so important. Pop the last slide up, please. Well, yeah. Next one. Keep going. That one. <laughs> Paul says in verse 8: for physical training of some value, godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come, he says. And as you can see from my physical shape, I believe in physical training for other people. My body is indeed a temple, it's falling apart and it's. It's a bit of a ruin, but despite how good physical training is, the truth, the pursuit of physical, spiritual improvement, following the truth is so much more worthwhile because its benefits are eternal. All the hours I put in the gym will only last as long as my body does, and one day, in a few, God's grace, God is gracious, a few years' time, my body won't be around anymore. And all that training will be waste, a waste of time. When I die, it will be worthless. But the, effect, the effort I put into godliness... Into following Jesus, that will last forever. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, for the truth that Jesus lived and died and rose again. And through his sacrifice and through nothing else, certainly nothing of our own doing, we can look forward to an eternity with you, growing more like Jesus as we study the Bible, as we pray, as we live out our lives, giving them back the gifts to you that you've given to us. And so we thank you. In Jesus' name.